Since the beginning, members of the NC Advocates for Justice have been raising their voices, speaking out on behalf of those who go unheard, joining their voices to oppose injustice and support fair treatment for everyone under the law. With this podcast, Voices of NCAJ, we'll listen to those members, lawyers and legal professionals who founded the organization, whose dedication and energy kept it going and guided it through growth, change and challenges. Each conversation will inspire us to meet the future with a unified voice that channels the strengths and accomplishments of our organization. Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. I'm your host, Amber Nimix. As communications and marketing manager for the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, part of my job is to train a spotlight on the people who make NCAJ great. And that's what we'll be doing on this podcast. Our podcast is edited and engineered by our friends at Law Pods, a professional audio production company focused on helping lawyers make great sounding podcasts. They sweat all the details so you can concentrate on the content. If you're thinking about podcasts, check them out at lawpods.com. They've made this so easy for us. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the NCAJ. And during this, our first season of the podcast, we'll be talking with NCAJ leaders to help us celebrate the organization's past, present, and future. There's no one better to kick us off than my guest today, John McCabe, our 2021-22 president. John is the principal attorney of the law offices of John McCabe, PA, in Cary. He is a graduate of Campbell University Law School and has practiced as a plaintiff's attorney since 1995, which was about the same time he joined what was then known as the North Carolina Academy of Trial Lawyers. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Amber. Good to see you. Thank you all for doing this. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, It's cool. This is really a cool thing to be doing. So as president of NCAJ, you write a column for our quarterly magazine, Trial Briefs. And for the winter edition, you wrote a great piece that included a prediction from your first boss at a law school. Kick us off by telling us about what he predicted for you. Well, I have to tell you about my first job at, at a law school. I was a workers' mm-hmm. comp defense lawyer. I had clerked at this firm and uh, got a job offer when I was a clerk and started working. Now, keep in mind, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight years old. And I got a job in this law firm in Cary, which was my hometown, and started doing defense work. And I hated it. And frankly, I wasn't very good at it. It was just not something I was good at doing whatsoever. And about a year into it, I wanted to like go make coffee at Starbucks rather than practice defense law. I just wasn't very happy about it. So finally, I, I got a job offer at a plaintiff's firm, and I went into my supervising attorney, who was a great guy, and I uh, told him I had gotten another job and was going to go do plaintiff's work. And he looked at me, and he said, John, you're going to go join the academy, and you'll be just fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the academy was North Carolina at, or the North Carolina Academy for Trial Lawyers at the time, uh, as you mentioned. So that's what I did. So do you remember a specific moment when you realized that you were not meant to be a defense attorney, but a plaintiff's attorney? Yeah. um, Well, there were a lot of moments I realized I didn't want to be a defense lawyer. Billable hours were horrible. Uh, Sitting in a law firm, staring at the clock, marking off time in six-minute increments was horrible. I would have 
my wife call at the time, and I would be annoyed that she'd called me because I had to pause my billable hours to take a personal phone call. And it just, it wasn't good. And it was thankless. Insurance companies were never thanking you for a job well done. I didn't like the politics of being in a big firm either. So I quickly realized that being a defense lawyer wasn't the right thing. And I saw some opportunity on the plaintiff side. And then once I started doing plaintiff's work, it made it pretty clear to me that that's what I needed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Now, I think probably my first client, I still remember my first client meeting as a plaintiff's lawyer. I remember the client's name. I remember where I sat. I remember where she sat. I remember what the weather was like that day. And I said, this is what I need to be doing. And it felt comfortable, like getting into a case on the ground level, getting to know people, to represent people rather than insurance companies was a really big deal for me. And to actually feel like you're making a difference. That's kind of why I wanted to go to law school. And I finally got that feeling. And I never had that feeling as a defense lawyer. And you knew when you when you left the defense firm that that you needed to join the academy. <laughs> Do you remember the picture you had in your mind of, of the academy at that time? Yeah. Before I joined, the academy was this mystical, magical aura of an organization that had all these high-powered, uber-successful lawyers who I'd been reading about every week in Lawyers Weekly. And it, it was just this magical thing. And I didn't really understand it, but I just knew that that's where all the great lawyers on the plaintiff side were, that they were somehow all in this organization. And again, it had just kind of this mythical aura to it, um, that this is where you had to be if you wanted to be any sort of a decent plaintiff's lawyer. And so who were, who were the first uh, of these mystical characters that you got to know when you, when you joined the Academy? Well, the, the first characters that I got to know, I wouldn't call any of them mythical or magical <laughs> whatsoever because they were all the new lawyers uh, who are not so new lawyers now. Uh, but the first people I really got to know are my dear friends to this day, Chris Nichols, Brian Davis, who became a law partner for almost a decade, Ann Harris, Will Goldfarb, Philip Miller, Deke Owens. Those sorts of folks were the folks I really got to know at first. Then on a more experienced level, it was I came out when I became a plaintiff's lawyer, I started doing plaintiff workers' comp law. So I got to know the folks in the um, – workers' comp section closest. So Victor Farah, Lenny Jernigan, Hank Patterson, uh, then Robin Hudson, who's now Justice Robin Hudson. Those were the people who were not my level, not the younger folks who were the people I got to know on a more mentor level. And then as I got into the organization and, and spent time around the organization, I got to know these other Different level of mythical, magical aura folks, uh, you know, the Burton Craigs, the Doug Abrams, Wade Bird. I remember getting to meet Wade Bird was just such a really big deal for me. Howard Twiggs, you know, Jay Trahey, Don Strickland, David Kirby was fantastic to me. Janet Ward Black, Liz Cunningham, all those people were super, super important in my development. And were you surprised at the level of involvement and sort of access that that you were that you had with these folks who who had these great reputations, these fabulous lawyers. I was stunned by it and I didn't understand it at all. It took me a while to get to know these folks uh, and to have the courage to go talk to them. But really once I started talking to those folks, they were incredibly accessible. It, it amazed me at their willingness 
to take time to answer a phone call from me. Now, back then, we didn't have email, so we weren't emailing each other. So you would pick up the phone call and call these folks, and invariably, they would answer my call. I, I still don't know why they did. Actually, I kind of do know now why they would answer my call. But they would always be willing to share their time and experience and, and give of it so freely and let me ask questions that I thought were maybe stupid questions that were potentially embarrassing. And they would assure me, no, these are good questions, and these are questions that most lawyers have. And they would walk me through them. And I just could not believe these lawyers who were just so successful. I mean, cover of Lawyers Weekly every other month, they were just uber successful, would take their time to answer a young lawyer's question. And they really, really were um, that, that was one of the biggest gifts that I got early on in the organization. So why, why did they? What, what's the secret? Great question. And I didn't understand it at the time. But what I realized is they were doing for me what other lawyers had done for them. And they, they were just, you know, you hear this term, pay it forward. And that's exactly what they were doing. No lawyer has come out of law school and just done exactly how to go try cases and how to build a case and do discovery and draft pleadings and take effective depositions. And all those lawyers at some point were taught by other more experienced lawyers. And they were just paying it forward. They were just, again, doing for me what others had done for them. And uh, now with where I am, I'm hoping uh, I'm giving some of that back as well. And you had a a couple of of folks who were particularly helpful that you would count as as mentors, right? Yeah. I appreciate you asking about it. It's hard to uh, even think about them without having a big smile come to my face. Tommy White was my first employer. He, he was absolutely wonderful to me and really taught me a lot about lawyering. Uh, I worked for Tommy for about four years, and then I, I went out on my own with Brian Davis, and we were both young lawyers. I was five years out of law school. I think Brian may have been eight years out of law school. And um, Liz Cunningham was a rock star. I mean, not just a rock star in North Carolina. She was a rock star across the country, and she was doing these high-profile sexual harassment, sexual molestation, med-mal cases, one of which was super high publicity here in Raleigh. And somehow, by the grace of God, she became a close friend of mine and Brian's. And she would go ride mountain bikes with us, and uh, she would talk to us after rides about cases. And she was one of those people who was always available. I mean, she would answer the phone and never I'm sure I annoyed her, but she never acted annoyed. She would always answer my questions. And I remember when I had my first med mal case, I brought Liz into it and I got to work with her on it. And it was just the greatest experience ever. Um, And to learn from her and then to, you know, do some aspects of the case under her guidance was really, really valuable. And I'm just, Liz has always been one of my biggest mentors and biggest, uh, I'm just a huge fan of hers, and I think she would say she's a big fan of mine. When Liz stopped kind of actively practicing, started dialing back her practice, I knew I needed to find somebody else. And again, I kind of got lucky. Doug Abrams and I have become very, very close friends. And uh, he he and I started working on cases probably 15, 16 years ago. We started working on cases together. And uh, he, he is now filled in, and he remains in that role for me. So I've always had a mentor. Um, despite all this gray hair on my head, I, I always have had a mentor and very grateful for Tommy, Liz, and uh, Doug for serving in that capacity for me. And that's one um, role that you and other folks who are um, in support of this NCAJ Next program 
are hoping that that it can play in the the lives of the future NCAJ members, right? Tell us a little bit about the NEXT program and how it pays it forward even more. The NEXT program was a great idea. I think it was initially brought to us by Noah Abrams, and I think it started under David Henson's presidency. And the idea was being, how do we organizationally have something formally in place where young lawyers can be part of the organization, be actively engaged in the organization, and taught leadership skills so that they can take over. For somebody like me, when I was coming up through the organization, you just kind of learned by just hanging around and watching and participating to the extent you were asked to participate. But there was no formal training or system to help kind of filter you in or farm you into the organization. So we had this idea of NCAJ Next, where we, it was it's a selective group, okay? Not everybody qualifies for it. We want folks who are dedicated to the organization, who are dedicated to our mission. And the idea is let's capture these people who are really energetic, super committed, and let's build around them. And, and let's get them in, let's get them some training, and then let's integrate them as much as we can into the fabric of the organization so that we have our leaders of tomorrow already in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a great program. I'm super fired up about it. I'm, I mean, it's a great, great course. And we have the, the group that we have coming in, the 13 folks that we have come in are superstars. I mean, they, they are really, really neat people. And we did a little uh, meeting with them, I guess, back in October. Um, Valerie Johnson, Kim Crouch, and I, and you're sitting around and you're listening to these people tell their stories and what they're doing and what their views are of life. They weren't views of life that I necessarily had at that age. I mean, these were much more evolved people than I was back then. And uh, (laughs) they're going to really do a a great, great job for the organization leading us forward. You must have had some some level of evolution because you were you were instrumental in starting the the first young lawyers division right in in North Carolina in NCAJ was it the academy then or was it, it was remember. the academy yeah uh, I, I think we were still the academy for maybe five or six years after we did the it was then the young lawyers division now it's the new mm-hmm, lawyers right? division but there was a a group of us we, we had an energetic group I mean we we had a fun energetic committed group it was me and I always say Chris Nichols. I mean, for, I, I think of the new lawyers division. I always think of my buddy Chris Nichols and Brian Davis and Ann Harris and uh, Deco and all the people I mentioned earlier. And, and we would all go to the convention. We'd all get around in a corner and we would talk about our cases and we would talk about other things. And we needed a spot within the organization. I think the organization at the time also realized there was a lot of young energy that needed to be captured. So uh, leadership at the time, plus a pretty active group that wanted to get involved, kind of came up and said, what do we do with these people? Where's the spot for this energetic group within the organization? That's when we created uh, the new lawyers division or the young lawyers division. It uh, was started by a bunch of people who are no longer young lawyers. It was great. I mean, th- th- those new lawyers division meetings and socials were some of the funnest times that I ever had at NCAJ. They, they were just great, great times, great memories. Really, really good times. And this was at a time in your career where you were obviously a young lawyer, new lawyer, and you had this, uh, you had the lawyers, young lawyers division, and you also had some help from NCAJ with a pretty pivotal um, case in your career, the Kelly Crabtree case, right? Tell us about Kelly. So, Kelly, um, this was back in 1998, so I was out of law school for four years. Wow. 
Kelly and her daughter lived up in the mountains, and they were, I think Kelly was taking her home from school one day, going down one of these windy mountain roads in a DOT truck being driven by somebody who wasn't licensed to drive it, comes left center, plowed into him. Both of them had catastrophic injuries, uh, life-changing injuries. And they had a State Tort Claims Act case. And at the time, there was a cap on damages under State Tort Claims Act. It was $150,000, which was nowhere near what Kelly's medical bills were, nowhere near what her daughter Mackenzie's medical bills were. Both of them had medicals far exceeding that cap. And I remember Kelly saying that somebody from the AG's office came to her this before she'd reached out to a lawyer and knocked on her door and says, you know, we're here to offer you $150,000. And Kelly says, what do you mean? He says, well, this is the most the law allows us to offer you, and I'm going to offer that to you right now. And Kelly says, there's no way I can accept that. That's not going to touch my medical bills. And the guy looked at Kelly and says, ma'am, you're going to feel really stupid three years from now when I come back and offer you the check for the same amount. Oof. And Kelly, that lit Kelly up. And, and Kelly was somebody who had, she had fire in a good sense. She, she wasn't an angry person, but she mm-hmm. knew what was right and wrong. And she started calling around to various lawyers. And all the lawyers kept telling her the same thing the AG's office was telling her, which is take the money, take the money, take the money. And then through one of my law school classmates, Kelly came to me. I said, well, we just got to do something about this. And quite frankly, I was so green at the time, I decided I'd take the case. I said, we'll figure out something. Um, So we started looking at the case and didn't see a judicial route to changing the law. There there was nothing that could be done judicially. The, The cap had been upheld as being constitutional. So we started, well, let's just go change the law. <laughs> and let's, let's go change it retroactively and have it apply to this case. It should be no problem whatsoever. So Kelly reached out to her representative, Trudy, Trudy Walden at the time. And uh, I reached out to the folks at, I'll say NCAJ, but I think at that point we were still the academy. And started telling them about the facts of this case. And everybody started talking to each other. I spent a whole lot of time with the leadership at NCAJ at that point going, how can we make this happen? We realized we had a fantastic fact pattern. And we also had somebody like Kelly who, once you got her in front of people, you, you just you were impassioned and you wanted to help her. She was a wonderful spokesperson for changing this law. And NCAJ arranged it so that Kelly and her daughter and her husband and me, we could all go down to Jones Street. And we got to talk to some of the legislators. And we started telling them about Kelly's experience. And slowly but surely, everybody started wanting to change the law. And at the time, we initially just wanted to try to get a change to 300,000. We wanted to get doubled from 150 to 300. By the time we were done with it, Amber, the legislator said, no, we're not going to do 300. We're going to make it 500. Wow. And they had a massive change in the State Tort Claims Act, and they made it retroactive so that it would apply to Kelly and her daughter. And uh, through the efforts that we had in that case, we learned about some other laws that weren't very well publicized, and we were able to go pursue even a recovery beyond what we got under the State Tort Claims Act. So I owe all of that to NCAJ. That, that would not have happened, but for NCAJ, Kelly would have carried a lot of the water on it. She would have done well. But without NCAJ and its political connections, it would have never happened. And uh, I'm forever grateful. It, it is by far one of my most proud 
uh, moments of my career, and NCAJ was a big part of it. That must have been amazing as as an attorney with four or five years experience to like not only have that win for for a client, but also to to change the rules entirely. That must have been amazing. You know, and I ask myself now, I go, if that case was to come in my door right now, what would my reaction be? What would I do with it? And I don't know if it would have been the same choice that I made back then. And again, I, I was young enough, naive enough, probably eager enough. That I was like, we're going to go figure out something. But it, it's, it, it really was so rewarding. And, you know, NCAJ a couple of years after that created the Kelly Crabtree Award to recognize right. a client who has showed that level of fight, who has fought for justice for not just themselves, but for the people of North Carolina. And uh, I, I'm really proud of that award. Uh, I'm really glad, and I'm very grateful for the organization for recognizing Kelly. She, she was one in a million. Yeah, that's a, it's a tremendous story. And it is, it is very gratifying to, to know that we're always looking for, for that next Kelly Crabtree, you know. And they're, and they're out there. And, and that's what it takes. You know, the, the lesson from it is it, people, the story, and it's just like trying cases. It's the story of the people that lead to change. It's not some lawyer's magic doing. It's not some lawyer's magic words. It's the people behind it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've been doing that with a lot of things for NCAA. You know, go back to our comparative negligence efforts that we had uh, last year. We had mm-hmm. some awfully compelling stories and some awfully compelling people talking about the injustice and the injustice that comes from contributory negligence. And those stories, and we're yeah. not done telling those stories. You know, those stories are going to continue. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I think, you know, they're going to lead to change eventually. Yeah, I guess it, it all just, you have to have the right people in place at the right time and, you know, strike, mm-hmm. you know, all the stars have to align in a certain way, so. And, and also, part of it is don't get deterred. You know, just because you missed the first time doesn't mean give up. You know, mm-hmm. um, what's that saying? It's a, a Zen saying, you know, get knocked down seven, get up eight. Right. And, and that's part of what we're doing, you know. Is that what makes NCAJ tick? Is it perseverance? Is it uh, is it the magic between the between the members? What I mean, we're we're looking at sixty years, and and that's that's a that's a pretty big milestone when you're talking about a uh, a nonprofit organization full of, despite the fact that everyone's an attorney, they are vastly different. You know, there's a such a range of of personalities and and interests and needs in this organization. What what hold, what do you think holds it together? That's a great question, yeah. What makes us cohesive is that we rally around. We have common foes. We have common causes. One of the things when I was a puppy lawyer and I was looking at this mythical, magical NCAJ at the time, you know, it's like, why are all these lawyers banded together when in actuality and in reality— they're competitors of each other. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. you know, this lawyer would like to have that lawyer's case. And what I found within NCAJ is they are not all individualistic. Everybody is in here for the collective good, and they want to help each other fight the common foe. And one of the things we realize better than any other organization is a rising tide raises all boats. And our organization is wonderful about that. We all want to individually succeed, but we also want all of our fellow members to succeed. And part of that is certainly there, there's a self-interest in that because that, that will benefit you. But really, it's just trying to do the right thing and get the right result for the right reasons 
and beat those common foes, whether it be an insurance company, you know, a company that's taking shortcuts on safety. All of those things are things that we do organizationally. All of our members have that in their DNA, okay? And if you didn't have that in DNA, you're, you're going to be on the periphery of this organization. But what makes us tick is that cohesion, that, that bondedness of we are all in this together. I can add a little bit to like golfers, professional golfers. You know, for the most part, professional golfers aren't out there trying to beat their other golfers. They're trying to beat the course. And that's what we're trying to do within NCAJ. You know, we're trying to beat our common foe. Again, that common foe could be an insurance company, a bad company, a uh, bad nursing home. Um, mm-hmm. But that common cause that we are passionate about is what makes us so unique and, and different. You know, that's why we're not the Bar Association. And so now that you've, you've gone from being, a, as you said, a puppy lawyer and um, building all these relationships uh, and now having about halfway through your NCAJ presidency, what has this year been like for you? What has serving as the president of the association been like? Well, I'll have to say at the outset, you know, it's been the greatest privilege I've had as a lawyer. It has been one of the hardest things I've ever done. And NCAJ has done a wonderful job preparing me for it. We are really, really good at not just throwing our leaders into the fire without preparing them for it. And one of the things NCAJ did with me, starting with Vernon, Sumwalt, and then with David Henson, was they really kind of got me ingrained and groomed me to be in a position to lead the organization. It's not easy. Nothing about it is easy. It's time-intensive. You have a lot of different people. As you said earlier, there are a lot of different personalities. But you don't take the job because it's easy. Steve Jobs, I think, once said, you know, if you want to make everybody happy, don't be a leader, go sell ice cream. <laughs> and that's part of what we're looking at at NCAJ. You know, if you're going to lead, especially in this time, in the pandemic, I mean, it, it is a really challenging time with everything that's going on to lead an organization. We got some changes incurring uh, that have been taking place. You know, we, Kim Crouch has now been with us. I think she's coming up on six years. And you know, we're getting her steadied in, and I think that's really good for us organizationally. But it's, it's hard. Um, I think probably the best way to describe it for uh, any of our members is imagine being lead counsel on a case where you have 2,000 clients. And you have 2,000 clients who are, are uber sophisticated, uber opinionated, who absolutely know the law, who absolutely know the facts of the case and want to tell you how to try your case. Um, <laughs> The good news about it is you're not the sole counsel on the case. You know, you got a lot of really, really good co-counsel. And, and I have a lot of really good people around me. I have a spectacular executive committee with people who I trust and value. Got a great board of governors. And we got great section leadership. So there's a lot of help to be had. So it, it's been fun. It's been challenging. It's been hard. And I am very grateful that y'all trusted me enough to give me a year at the helm to try to do the best that I could. Well, I'm sure everybody is is grateful for you for uh, for sticking in there, especially uh, this year. You know, you and you and David have both just I can't imagine how tough it's been with with COVID and and trying to trying to keep it. I mean, I can't imagine because I've been watching you both do it, and it's been an extra level of difficulty on the on the course. I would say definitely it has been. I, I think we've adjusted to it as well as we could. I felt really bad for David Henson that people really didn't get to see the level of work that he did as president. I think a lot of it was seen. I think we did a good job messaging it. But I had a front row seat, and I got to see how hard he was working and everything he did. And it was spectacular what he was able to accomplish during his year. 
when I came in, I didn't want to screw up what David had done. You know, I just kind of <laughs> wanted to try to build off of it. And I think we've been able to do that. I'm, I'm proud of what we've been able to do this year. Um, we got a lot more to do. But, you know, the divisiveness that we have politically coupled with the stress and the uncertainty of the pandemic has been really tough on all of us. Uh, it's been, and I think it's been particularly tough on lawyers. I mean, we deal with a public that is generally not happy, okay? That if they're calling you, sure. something's not good in their life. And then you throw on top of that political divisiveness, polarization, increased uh, feelings of being able to express really strong opinions without a filter, and you mm -hmm. throw the uncertainty and the fright of the pandemic on top of it. It's a, it's a tough time to be a lawyer. Sure. I think it's also a great time to be a lawyer, but I think it's a tough time to be a lawyer. What would you say are the, the biggest challenges uh, facing trial lawyers and in, and in CAJ in, spe in specific? I, I think it builds off what I just said. I, I think the main thing right now is dealing with a deeply divided public and a super divided and polarized political system. Mm-hmm. For us, you know, NCAJ, one of the things we do, we are very active on an advocacy front. We are very active at all three levels of uh, government, all three branches, and trying to navigate the political waters that are changing and uncertain is very, very difficult for us. I think that's going to be a challenge. I think the other challenge that we have right now is, again, just the divisiveness and the polarization of the public in, in general. I think mm -hmm. it's... It's hard when those people are your clients. It's hard when those people are your jurors. It's hard when those people may be witnesses in your case. And I think those are the two biggest mm -hmm. things that uh, I think are facing us right now. I wish I could say I could see those things coming to an end soon. I frankly don't. Uh, I think we're going to be dealing with this uncertainty for quite some time. What would you hope for for NCAJ as as it moves into its seventh decade? What what are your greatest wishes if you were to if you've done your presidency? I mean, of course you're you're not going anywhere, but I mean you've you've done sort of like a parent, you know, gotten you this far, and good luck. Here's what I hope you can you can do after I'm I've stepped away. I hope I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're not. My, my big thing's right now, unity. I, I really want unity within the organization. I don't want the divisiveness that is happening among the general public to carry over into our organization. We've had periods of that from time to time. We've had periods of it since I've been in leadership. And I think more than ever, this is a time for us to huddle together, not huddle apart, not to break apart. So I, I really hope that organizationally moving forward that we will rally and support each other like we have over the, for the most part, over the last 60 years and, and really stay united and, and continue to keep in mind, you know, we're fighting the golf course again. Let's battle the course. Let's battle our foes. And we need to do it as a whole. We cannot do that if we're not together. So I really do hope that we have that unity and that that continues. And I, I've seen that. I've really, really seen the unity in this organization over, say, the last year. We have really done a good job of huddling together and supporting each other, and, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I think we have a really good infrastructure being put in place. I'm really proud of the strategic plan that we put in place, and then I'm super proud of the advocacy strategic plan 
And I think that's going to create some wonderful infrastructure uh, for organization. I think it's going to create some things that our members really wanted, which is accountability and transparency. And I think you're going to see this organization continue to do what it has done, and that's adapt. And, and that's probably the other thing, Amber, that I really hope we do is that we remain mindful that we have to adapt. We can't keep doing things as they've always been done. You know, I think that's the, at some point, the way of always doing it becomes the route to failure. Mm-hmm. You have to adapt. And this, you know, we do that in our cases. Uh, when we have our cases, if we have facts that come up that may change something, we, we don't just ignore the facts or we don't just keep pounding the same uh, theory of liability if it's not going to be a good theory of liability. We adapt. You know, we, we try to get different facts, different witnesses, alter and change our theory of the case, come up with a different way to approach it. And I hope that organizationally commit, I, I firmly believe leadership will have this, and I hope the members will really be supportive of this, is the ability to continue to adapt to this ever-changing political climate that we're in and the need for us to be able to certainly make sure we don't put a target on our backs. I think that's really important. Uh, and we've been in that position organizationally before, but also try to start laying the groundwork to do things affirmatively and proactively and, and get some positive changes in the law. And we saw that, again, last year, we, we introduced the comparative negligence bill. That's mm-hmm. a really big deal. And some of our detractors may say, well, you didn't get it passed. We took the shot and we thought we had a good shot and we're not done shooting. Uh, again, we're going to get up and we're going to keep pushing that just as we are the other parts of our public policy agenda. So uh-huh. I hope unity and adaptability are, are our two main things going forward. They've what, they're what's carried us and made us where we are. We're the third largest trial lawyers association in the state, in, in the country. Mm-hmm. And that unity and the ability to adapt is what has always made us special. And the cohesion, it's made us special. It's made us able to be what we are, where we have criminal and civil practitioners in an organization together. And it's going to continue mm-hmm. to carry us forward, but we can't lose sight of that. All right. That sounds like a, a tremendous vision for the future and a great place, great place to leave it. Let's, uh, let's, let's continue with the unity and adaptability. And um, as I've been writing the, some historical pieces for trial briefs and, and in celebration of the 60th anniversary, I have to say that uh, one of the first things I uncovered was uh, the – or read about was the efforts to change the um, contributory negligence, negligence law. So I would not feel bad that you didn't get it done in uh, in the year 59, because I think they've been trying since year number one. And as you said, just kind of keep pushing. It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. And we got a lot of smart people. Um, you know, we are not pacifists in this organization. We are activists. But we're, we're smart about how we deploy that activism. And mm-hmm. there are certain times where cannot effectuate change at the exact time. And you need to figure out, well, what can you change so that you can effectuate change at some point down the road? And, and I think that's what we're doing organizationally. Uh, that's certainly been the mindset of leadership for the last couple of years. And I certainly think that mindset will continue forward with our next group of leaders. Great. Well, thank you so much, John, for being our first guest on Voices of NCAJ and for your leadership throughout this tough, but um, what's ultimately going to be a very celebratory year for us. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Amber. It's been fun. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.